Alexander, written and read by Oliver Gray. Chapter 9. The police in Hampshire, meanwhile, were concentrating on putting together a watertight case to ensure the conviction of Barry Mort. There were plenty of other crimes that needed attention, but with a high-profile murder, it was essential to leave no holes in the evidence that could be exploited by a clever defence lawyer. Convictions too often collapsed because of some unanticipated technical loophole. The first thing to look at in detail when the team convened at the county police headquarters in Romsey Road was the forensic evidence from the site. From the venue itself, there was the badly torn poster advertising a forthcoming appearance by the UK subs. Fibres from Barry Mort's jacket were all over it, confirming what all witnesses had said, namely, that he'd been forcibly held up against the wall by Corey Zander. The essential items from the car park were the murder weapon, in the form of the brick, and the handle of the bin. The blood on the brick was definitely Corey's, but there was no proof that Mort had held the brick. It was so scarred from use that fingerprints were just a jumbled mess, and of Barry's DNA there was no trace. DNA swabs were also taken from his sidekicks, Dean Harris and Jason Bright, but these drew a blank as well. The obvious explanation was that Mort had worn gloves, and in the end it was decided that this would be the argument to present in court. A full search of Mort's house in Thurmond Road had produced no sign of any gloves, but he could easily have burnt them somewhere or dumped them in a bin on his way home. The budget did not run to searching every possible bin and hedge on all the several routes that he could have taken home from the station. The question of who had dumped the brick in the bin was equally difficult to answer with certainty. The jumbled hotchpotch of smeared prints meant that it was impossible to establish whether any of the gang had touched it. There was no DNA from any of the three. But wearing gloves was the likely explanation for that. All in all, there was no proof that any of them had opened the lid and dumped the weapon. But on the other hand, there was no proof that they hadn't. Corey's clothes substantiated the team's suspicions. His scruffy coat contained everything they suspected. Mort's DNA, fibres from his jacket, and of course the fingerprint on the badge. Corey's shirt collar was drenched in his own blood. Barbara Sellers then talked everyone through the pathologist's report on Corey Zander. Dr Patel had opened the body up and confirmed minor signs of liver disease and the previously documented heart repair evidence, but the cause of death clearly lay elsewhere. She says he suffered a major brain hemorrhage caused by the back of his head connecting with a hard object. The shape of the imprint area is consistent with it having been a house brick. Dust particles confirm that. The blow could have been inflicted by someone hitting him with a brick, but it could also have come from the victim falling or being pushed backwards and falling onto it. Could it have just been a simple accident? She says it's unlikely because a natural cause of falling over, such as tripping or feeling faint, would have meant a forwards falling motion, in which case the wound would most likely have been on the front of the head. When all the pathologist's evidence was presented to the coroner, he had no choice but to bring in a verdict for manslaughter or murder by persons unknown. It had quite clearly not been an accident. Now it was time for formal interviews with all the other witnesses. The immediate top priority was to attempt to eliminate the two other members of Mort's gang on the night. Both were dodgy characters with minor criminal records of their own. They could easily have been involved in helping their friend avenge his humiliation, in which case they would at very least be accessories, and at worst be on murder charges themselves. First to come in was Dean Harris, a skinny, pale-faced, ferret-like man. His background was in drug dealing, and it showed. 
It was evident that he had a habit himself, and he admitted as much, sweating and twitching as the interview went on. Harris had been smoking in the garden when Mort rang out of the venue. What was the first you knew about the trouble? Well, we was talking to Baz's cousin in the garden, and Baz went back in. Then he comes running out and says, we got to go. I says, why? And he says, that Yank was coming to get him. So we all ran into the train station car park and then off down Stockbridge Road. Did you see the American? Yeah, he came out first. He went into the car park and just disappeared. That's why we took the chance and ran for it. Next in was Jason Bright. Bright by name, but not by nature, thought Jackson, as he looked at the spotty face with the unfocused eyes and the drooping lower lip. If anything, he had even less to tell. He'd been in the front bar, talking to Mort's cousin and playing the quiz machine, he said, before joining the others in the garden. This seemed implausible in view of the IQ level he seemed to possess, but his fingerprints were, indeed, on the machine in question. There had been a couple of other men in the bar, playing pool, but they had left shortly after Bright had, and had never been traced. When questioned in detail, Bright's story exactly tallied with that of Harris. Barry Mort had suddenly burst out of the back bar and shouted to him and Harris to come with him, quick. Then they'd all three run off together. Where did you go? We all ran into the train station car park and then down Stockbridge Road. The interview transcript confirmed the use of identical words by Bright and Harris. They'd obviously planned in detail, probably with Mort, for their stories to corroborate each other. But did this mean they were lying? Bert was almost sure that they must have been involved in some way but there was absolutely no evidence to support his suspicions. Neither of the men had any fibres, DNA or fingerprints to suggest that they had had any contact with Corey Zander at all. There was nothing to connect them to the brick or the bin either. If they were accomplices to the murder, there was no proof and no prospect of getting any. To accuse either of them of being involved, risk muddying the waters and increasing the chances of an acquittal for Mort. On that basis, Neither Harris nor Bright were arrested and both were allowed to go. Looking at the possible timeline, the investigating team concluded that the following had happened. Corey Zander had stormed into the car park and was standing there in the dark, fuming. Mort, having regained his breath but still drunk, angry and eager for revenge, had announced that he was going to kill Zander and also claimed to have gone after him. It could easily be, and this was the most likely scenario, that he'd found Xander standing there looking the other way and had simply smashed him on the head with the first weapon he could grab. This was the sort of cowardly act of violence that Mort was known for. The other, less likely possibility, was that there'd been some kind of fight between them and that either Mort had pushed him or that he'd slipped and fallen over backwards onto the brick, as the pathologist had acknowledged was feasible. The first possibility would mean a murder charge for Mort, but in the second case, Manslaughter would be the more likely charge if a conviction was to be secured, because Mort would argue that it had never been his intention to kill Corey. In an effort to see if any clarification was available, the team needed to re-interview everyone. First, Ben Walker was invited up from Wiltshire to be questioned again. This time, the atmosphere was completely different, because he was no longer a suspect. Instead of being questioned about hypothetical actions that had never taken place, he was now able simply to describe what had happened. The trouble, from the police's point of view, was that Ben had only witnessed the preamble, in the form of the scuffle in the room. Ben confirmed the sequence of events. By the time of the incident there was hardly anyone left in the room, because the bookworm's friends had all left. 
He'd made a half-hearted attempt to stop Barry Mort coming in the first time, but the second time he'd pretty much abandoned the door because he'd been watching Corey, who was coming to the end of his set. Mort just marched in and immediately started causing trouble. The useful things that Ben confirmed were that Mort had indeed been offensively abusive for no other reason than that he was a drunken lout. He had quite definitely shouted that he'd kill Corey and he'd run out in apparent pursuit of him. Why didn't you follow? I don't know, a mixture of things. I obviously didn't think he was really going to kill him, and Corey was twice his size, so he didn't need any help from me. But mainly I was frightened. I'd never been involved in anything like that before, and I was scared that I might end up getting hurt myself. So you saw nothing of the events outside? No, I stayed in the room and helped clear up. I expected Corey to come back, so when he didn't, I went to look for him. By the time I got outside, there was no one there at all, apart from Andy the landlord, clearing glasses from the tables in the garden. Do you think the landlord could have had anything to do with this killing? Why on earth would he? He's a good, honest guy, just trying to make a living. But... Suddenly, a thought sprang into Ben's mind. There's something I haven't mentioned before. Oh God, don't confess now, thought Bird. That really would mess everything up. Yes. Well, I can't be sure, but I believe I saw Carl, the guy from Southampton who supplied some dope to Corey. Maybe there's some connection there. Where did you see him? I thought I spotted him in the gig, but it could have been someone else. Was he in the garden? I don't think so. I only saw him for a second, and it might not have been him anyway. Bird made a note to follow this up. Robert Layton didn't like being called back in for a second interview. Well, officer, as you already know, I can't tell you anything useful, so are you really sure you'll need to call me as a witness? It would reflect very badly on the school. We may not need to call you, Mr. Layton, but some of the evidence will be circumstantial. For example, we need you to confirm whether or not Mort threatened to kill Xander. Robert looked dismayed. He couldn't lie, but this would almost certainly put him down as a witness. Yes, I'm afraid he did. His explanation for not following Mort was the same as Ben's. He was scared and he didn't want to get involved. But the moment he thought things might have quietened down, he headed straight for the exit. The last thing his reputation needed was for him to have been seen to be involved, even periphery, in a pub brawl. He got out as fast as he could. And when you went out, did you see anything? Well, Robert looked down and hesitated. I may have seen something. What do you mean you may have seen something? Either you did or you didn't. What I mean is I saw something, but I don't know exactly what it was. Bird sighed. What, you mean it was a UFO? He was getting irritated by this pompous man. Go on, Mr. Layton, spit it out, please. What I saw was two people arguing in the car park. I could hear them as well, but I couldn't hear what they were saying. And who were these two people? That's just it. It was dark, and I wouldn't be able to describe them. One was big, and the other was smaller. Did one have an American accent like Xander? I couldn't make that out. Bird was elated. At last, he not only had a witness with something to describe, it was also a credible witness. Someone was standing in the community. But one thing bothered him. Why didn't you mention this when we interviewed you before? Well, it's a bit embarrassing, but I really didn't want to get involved. If I could avoid having to give evidence in court, I'd prefer that. You know how people talk, and I have to think about the reputation of the school. It's bad enough having a teacher involved, far less the headmaster. 
Well, I'm sorry, but you're involved now. So now we can pretty well guarantee that you will be called as a witness, and an important one at that. So you'd better get used to it. Bird was not impressed by someone who clearly thought his public standing was more important than his integrity. It was a different matter with Rosie Layton. It took only minutes to confirm that she hadn't seen anything at all. Her headache had meant that she'd gone home before the real trouble had kicked off. She blamed the headache on nerves caused by Barry Mort's initial invasion of the room, which she had found both upsetting and intimidating. She confirmed that his behaviour had been drunken and objectionable, but there were numerous other witnesses who could testify to that effect. Jackson briefly toyed with the notion of Rosie not going home, but instead lurking in the car park to attack Xander. The whole idea was laughable. So Jackson told Rosie that it was unlikely that she would be called as a witness. Students who had come to see the bookworms all told an identical story. They had completely missed the incident in the hall because they had been outside, chatting, smoking and discussing their performance. They hadn't wanted to see Corey Xander because they assumed the music would be old-fashioned. Had they seen Corey come out of the pub? No but they had all witnessed Barrymore rushing out, gathering his mates and running away, shouting abuse. Their accounts were all so uncannily similar that Bird was sure the Mort gang must have got to them too. None of them were any use to his case, but he feared that some of them were likely to be called as defence witnesses. Of the people who had actually seen Corey attacking Mort, no one had anything to add. The man in the Grams t-shirt was particularly vociferous. Not only has his ill wife nearly been knocked off her chair when Xander stood up, but, in his opinion, one of the greatest musicians who ever walked this earth had been callously murdered in a country which should have been showing him hospitality. That thug did it, as sure as I'm sitting here, he declared. He said he was going to kill him, and he did. Jackson was dispatched to the Tower Brock in Millbrook to locate and interview Carl, the drug dealer. It was an unproductive visit. Not only did Carl deny ever having dealt in drugs or heard of anyone called Corey Zander, but his mother was more than happy to swear that he had been at home with her all evening, watching television, on the day of the killing. As there was nothing to connect him to the case beyond a hunch by Ben Walker, Carl was put on the back burner. Bird and his team now began to collate all the evidence and interviews they had accumulated, in preparation for a trial, which they hoped would be scheduled for the spring. It was quite clear who had killed Zander, but with no eyewitnesses, the exact details remained a mystery. Now it would be in the lap of the gods whether Mort was convicted or not, probably down to procedural quirks. The charge was murder, with the possibility that the judge might recommend the lesser charge of manslaughter. In Winchester, the community grapevine was functioning well. The Barry Mort is Innocent Facebook page had over 200 followers. Many of the posts focus on the point that it was typical of Winchester that the middle-class teacher who'd equally well be guilty had been released without charge, while the working-class lad was now being framed on account of his past. One girl from Stanmore recognised Rosie in the high street one afternoon and asked her where Ben was. Rosie explained that he had gone away for a while. He'd better not come back then, said the girl, or you'll know what'll happen to him. Ben was glad to be away. His new life in Bradford-on-Avon was agreeable to him, although he found it ironic that he had, by chance, become involved in music promoting again. Luckily, there were no such dramatic events in the sleepy market town, and all the music evenings passed without incident. His parents didn't mind having him around. His life would have to be on hold until the trial, about which he'd just received a letter, telling him it had been scheduled for April. After that would come the wedding, of course. 
The agreement that Rosie and Ben came to was a charter to move on. After the trial, it would make no sense for Ben to remain in Winchester. He had no reason to. Whichever way it went, he would potentially be under threat. His relationship with Robert could never really return to how it had been before, although Robert's attitude had mellowed to the extent that he had declared himself willing to write him a reference that would be good enough to get him another teaching job. Ben wasn't sure he wanted to teach again, but that was a decision for the future. As it was, he and Rosie agreed that either she would move to Wiltshire to join him after the wedding, or that the two of them would up sticks and move to another part of the country altogether. Rosie herself was well qualified and had an unblemished record, so should be able to find work elsewhere. Ben's thoughts were increasingly concentrated on his forthcoming trip to Austin. He found a flight direct from Heathrow to Houston, where he planned to hire a car and drive down Highway 35 to Austin, arriving on the Tuesday before the Thursday the festival opened. Looking at Google Maps, he could hardly contain his excitement. A couple of the musicians he had booked at the Narrowboat had played at South by Southwest in previous years and told him enticing stories about the warm climate, the cool people and the unending music. Life afterwards was going to be tough, he knew, but for now he was sincerely hoping for a lot of fun. This audiobook was a DC 10 tonight production.